Stand with me as we read God's word together today. We're going to read from the book of Philippians. Your screen says uh, verses 2 through 9. We're going to just read 2 through 7. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 7. This is God's word, and if you let it, it will change your life. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and with the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Pray with me. Father, as we hear your words this morning, I pray that they would take root in our hearts, alter the way that we think, alter the way that we live, make us more like you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. We have a tendency to every now and then, perhaps, maybe just a little bit, make things more complicated than they ought to be. Now, I do not have this problem. I do not have the problem of making things overly complicated. I'm glad the nursery does not have a microphone because Carrie would be laughing and y'all be hearing her now. Maybe I have a little bit, slight tendency, maybe a minor issue. It's easy um, to assume that just if we know more, if we can just get a little bit more knowledge, then we'll be okay. Um, We'll make better choices. We'll do the right things. We'll be the best we can be. Knowing, it is said, is half the battle, right? We see this play out in a number of ways, especially in our culture. We are obsessed with the idea of expertise. You can turn on the news tomorrow morning. Well, news. I say news because somewhere around 8 or 9 o'clock, they tend to transition away from more news format and into almost entertainment format. There'll be a little bit of news here and there. There'll be a little bit of this or that or the other thing, but they'll do celebrity gossip. And they'll have experts telling you about what this celebrity did or what they said or whatever it might happen to be. Have you seen, there are podcasts, no joke, that are analyzing the Oprah interview with Harry and Meghan. Really? Do we need that much expertise? I mean, can we not just watch the interview and that'd be it? I mean, do we really need someone to break that? Anyway, you'll see whole organization experts that tell you how to simplify your life and get organized. There's on Facebook an ad for someone that will show you a system so that you can keep everything organized so that you don't have clutter anymore. Okay? We have all kinds of experts, don't we? Every afternoon, millions of viewers tune in to listen to experts called doctors talk about people's ailments and the latest treatments to solve them. Or they tune in to courtroom-style experts. Courts that, I, I hate to tell you this, but aren't real courts. They're just arbitration. Even though the judge has to be called judge, and your honor, that, that's all for show. Uh, but we listen to these judges, pat, judges pass down judgments like they're modern-day Solomons being experts in the law. 
We're addicted to expertise. Sometimes it's our own. Sometimes it's someone else's. You know how many people get billed how many dollars for calling 1-900 psychic lines? You know how many folks pay attention to the horoscope in the paper every single day just to hear what the experts have to say? I'm so glad God doesn't make us have PhDs to understand his word. Now, there might be some things that are a little more difficult and you need to do your research and you need to put time into it. Don't get me wrong. There are some things like that. But when it comes to the basis of our faith and when it comes to what God expects of us, he puts the cookies down on the bottom shelf so everybody can reach them. He doesn't make it overly complicated and thank God for that. Some people will spend their lives like uh, uh, lining up Hebrew manuscripts and, and looking in all kinds of different directions for hidden messages. Would you just read the thing and do what it says? Ah, that, that really is our issue, isn't it? Our issue isn't that we don't understand. Most of the time, we get exactly what God's trying to get to us. Our problem is in the application. We don't do what God says. I mean, at some point, we can all identify with Paul in Romans chapter 7 when he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You ever been there? Yeah, you have. We all have, haven't we? We often find ourselves struggling to put into practice the ideals that are set forth in this Bible. We see Jesus loving neighbors and we say, yeah, I want to live that way. And then we walk outside and yell at our neighbor for blowing his leaves into our yard. It's just so hard to get it right, isn't it? We can understand what God wants, but to do it, that's a whole nother story. Paul finds himself quickly approaching the close of his letter to Philippi. And, it, and it's time to take the truths that he's been laying out and put some meat on those bones. Put, put some shoes on. Make the rubber meet the road. He's described with affection the partnership that he and this church share in the work of the gospel. He's waxed poetically about the divine example in Christ's humility and selflessness to win our redemption and express the divine imperative for us to live with that same humility and selflessness too. He's shown us the divine empowerment of God's work within us, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. He's, he's shown us examples of godly men. Timothy, Epaphroditus himself, giving up all things for the sake of Christ. He's charged the Philippians to stand firm in the Lord in the face of many struggles. Now it's time to show what those look like in real life. And he starts by poking the bruise. It's one thing to speak in generalities, but when you start naming names, that's when it starts getting real. Look in verse two. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Paul wants this situation to be dealt with and he knows that it needs to be dealt with quickly and thoroughly. But you got to understand here, Paul loves this church and this church loves Paul. You can't just walk up to people you don't know and start wagging your finger in their face and telling them what they ought to do. That's not going to be received very well. But for a man like Paul who has a rapport with this church, who loves this church and who this church loves back, this, this man with such a, a great relationship with this body of Christians, he can name names. He can poke his finger in the bruise to say, hey, this needs to be fixed. 
So that's what he does. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. The mission's too critical. The partnership too vital for this to linger any longer. We don't know exactly what they were disputing about. What we do know, though, is that they're both solid Christians. Look in verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. He's talking to a leader in the church saying, hey, I need your help with this. Help these women. But look how he describes the women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. In other words, these are ladies that are committed to the work. These are not just two gossips that are sitting on either side of the church talking about each other and making a mess. They're not just creating division in the body just for the sake of it or just trying to attain control. These are women who are actively working for the gospel of Christ, but they come to disagree about something. Now, even Paul had his disagreements. Do you remember John Mark, the kid coming along for the missionary journey, but then he quits because it gets too hard. Took, talk, took Paul a long time to forgive that. Barnabas had already forgiven him. I mean, Barnabas, he's the son of encouragement. You know, it's like mom and dad. You know dad's going to say no, you go to mom, so she'll say yes, because she'll more likely say yes, right? Barnabas is the yes. Paul is the no. And so when they go to go on another missionary trip, Barnabas wants to bring John Mark because he knows God's been working in this kid's life and he's ready for the big time now. He's ready to do the work that he wasn't ready to do before. Paul says, no, I'm not going to have him quitting on me again. And they argue. And then you know what they do? They split up. Paul takes Silas. Barnabas takes John Mark. And now we got two missionary groups going out. Later on, Later on, Paul would find that John Mark really was up to the task. But sometimes those disagreements happen, even over, even in good situations. Disputes happen. People disagree about what's the best way to do this. How should we go? Should we go in this direction or that direction? Should we use this particular method or that particular method? Should we establish this or should we establish that? Or should we not establish either and just do it differently altogether? Sometimes people have arguments. And these are two women that not only are partners in the gospel, but look how he concludes this, whose names are in the book of life. There is no doubt in Paul's mind that those are Christian women who are working for the gospel, doing the work of God, and yet they're still in disagreement. So Paul urges these two ladies to agree in the Lord. He used this language before, back in Philippians 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. It's the same terminology. Again, in verse 5 of chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, same language. He's saying, hey, this is the kind of mindset you ought to agree. Now he's telling these ladies, have the same mindset. It's the same thing Paul said in Romans chapter 12. Live in harmony with one another, same language. In other words, Paul doesn't just want these two women to get along to just find a way to keep it under the surface and not let it distract from the work. He wants them unified. In fact, he's pleading with them to be unified with the same mindset instead of merely compromising or just sweeping it under the rug. He wants them to genuinely come together. And he's even writing to a leader of that church to help it happen, to mediate if he has to, to, to bring them together for the sake of the gospel. It's amazing 
how that idea of unity produces a genuine reconciliation. When we are reconciled, when we become Christians, we are reconciled to God because of Jesus Christ. It is that same Christ and that same process of reconciliation that allows Christians to unite together in spite of our differences. To put it another way, reconciliation is applied unity. You want to know what unity looks like when it cuts on its boots and gets to work? It's reconciliation. We hear that word kind of thrown around a little bit. We hear it along, uh, uh, along several different lines. But reconciliation isn't just about listening to what someone else says. It's not just about being quiet and letting someone else talk. Though that is an important part of it. Reconciliation goes farther than that. It's about, unity is about bringing a diversity of views and experiences together to form a commonality. In other words, we don't just all look to be the same. We don't need to be carbon copies of each other. We need to be different. But it's those differences that strengthen us when we bring them together. Your hand is not like your foot. Thank goodness. Can you imagine walking around on two hands? Can you imagine trying to pick up something with two feet? We need them to be different. They have different strengths, different roles, different usefulnesses. But man, when you get your hands and your feet to work together, you can do some pretty neat stuff. You see, it's the unity that, that, it, that produces reconciliation in the church. We live in a world where people are divided among all kinds of different traits and classes. Intersectionality is this doctrine that you can only relate with people with whom you share common groups. So if you're a woman, you can only relate with women. But if you're a man, you can't relate with women. You can only relate with men. If you're white, you can't relate with black people. If you're black, you can't relate with Asians. If you're Jewish, you can't relate with Muslims. This idea that you have to have an intersection of groups that you meet and they meet in order for you to have some sort of ability to, to understand them and appreciate them and relate with them. It's total hogwash. It's total hogwash. Critical race theory, identity politics, both teach you to find your identity in the groups of oppression to which you belong. And they're both lies from hell. They are not gospel. They are antithetical to gospel because the fact of the matter is only the gospel can bring people together. It doesn't matter the color. It doesn't matter the age. It doesn't matter uh, what you call yourself. None of that matters when it comes to the gospel because the gospel is able to overcome every barrier. The gospel is able to unify in every diversity to get rid of every obstacle that stands in the way of unity. The gospel is, in fact, the only means of reconciliation. John paints this beautiful picture. Of course, he's just seeing it, but here it is. He sees this vision. He writes it down, and it's a, it's a glorious picture of what reconciliation leads to, the unity that we will have. And then I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
Do you notice the diversity? Every nation, every language, every people, every tribe. That's a whole lot of differences. But they're all saying the same thing. They're all unified together. Not just because there's a script and everybody has to read from it, but that's the genuine heart cry of every single individual in this scene. In fact, the gospel is not just a means of reconciliation. It is the only means of reconciliation. You cannot be reconciled with God or with men apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and its impact on you. Reconciliation is applied unity. What does unity look like when we put it into practice? It looks like us being reconciled to one another. Now, another application begins to come into focus in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. I almost think there should be an exclamation point at the end of this verse. It's kind of funny that he immediately follows this idea of reconciliation with rejoicing. I, I, I I think that's on purpose. In fact, I think he's thinking about these two ladies reconciling together, making amends, ending the argument and being unified in Christ and is rejoicing over the possibility that that can even happen because of God's love worked out through the gospel. Back in verse 1, there's a pattern here. Back in verse 1, he tells the Philippian believers to stand firm in the Lord. Verse 2, the women should agree in the Lord. Now in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Do you think he's trying to tell us something here? It's almost as if he's saying um, that the only way to stand firm, the only way to agree, the only way to rejoice is in the Lord. Funny how the Lord keeps coming to the forefront. Why should they rejoice? Because they're in it together. When Christians experience the partnership of the gospel, Christians working with other Christians together in unity, For the same purpose, the natural byproduct is joy. That's why joy keeps reappearing in this letter. Nine times the word for joy or rejoice, the verb form, is used. And four of the times are commands, including this one. In fact, twice. Remember what I, I, I don't know if you remember this, but the first week of this series, I said that partnership in the gospel is the theme of this letter. Joy is the mood. That's intentional. Because rejoicing is applied partnership. You see, what happens when we partner together is we find the joy of the Lord in the midst of one another. As we work together to share the gospel, to make disciples, we find that we have God's own joy filling our hearts. We laugh more. We celebrate victories. We encourage one another through circumstances. Joy becomes our de facto emotion. We're those people that are always smiling no matter what's happening. Not because we're putting on airs, but because we're genuinely joyful because we're partnering together. And it doesn't matter if the struggles are difficult. They are struggles. They're they're going to be difficult. Back in chapter 1, Paul talks about how some are preaching the gospel just to get out of it. They've got the wrong motives. Uh, uh, They're doing it for selfish gain or whatever they're doing it for. But, But then listen to what he says about that in verse 18. What then? In other words, so what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, And in that, I rejoice. You see, even when things are going bad, even when he was being mistreated and abused, Paul found that the preaching of the gospel was worth rejoicing, even if it meant it was to his detriment. Even if he he increases because I decrease, I'm happy about it because I want him increasing. Right? That's exactly 
That's exactly what partnership does. As we partner together, we can rejoice because the struggles don't matter anymore. Rejoicing is applied partnership. You might say, well, wait a minute. This sounds all good, but you know, sometimes it's just hard. Sometimes people screw up. And usually if they screw up, I have to pay for it. You're a manager and your employees don't show up to work. Guess who has to make the work happen? I got a friend that uh, he, he works in a concrete plant. So he's lifting big concrete blocks all day long. He's doing the work of three or four guys because he's the because he's the shift leader, supervisor type over, over that area. He's got to make sure all the paperwork gets done. He's got to make sure all the concrete blocks get made that need to get made. They all get moved to the right locations. He's got to make sure that everything happens. And so his guys might work eight hours. He works 10 and 12 and 15 to make sure everything happens. The guy's just hard. Like his skin, I think, is made of concrete. I don't know how. I don't know how the guy isn't battered and broken any more than he already is. But sometimes you have to pay the price when someone else messes up. What about that? I mean, I mean, partners together sounds great when everybody's pulling their load, but when some people aren't pulling their load, well, we got another application for you. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, this word reasonableness, um, I, I have a particular, particular story on this one. I was in college and my prof my professor told us we were going to have a test on a specific day, okay? Well, apparently uh, I didn't get very good sleep that night because I ended up oversleeping the test. Oh, great, right? And this was this was a professor that I had already seen was very straight-laced. Like he he didn't look like he had a lot of room to give. But who knows? Maybe something will work out for me. I went to the professor afterwards and I told him what happened. And yes, I told him what really happened. I didn't make up a story. I didn't say, well, I was trying to get here, but there was a terrible wreck on the 405, even though that's on the other side of the country. And <laughs> I didn't try to make up bad excuses. I just told him, look, I overslept. I'm, I'm, is there any way that I could retake the test? He kind of surprised me with his response. He was willing to let me retake the test. Of course, there was a penalty. That's okay. Better than zero, right? You know, better than 100 points off the test. And when I said, well, I know the syllabus doesn't, it says that there's no retakes allowed. He said, well, the syllabus is a worst case scenario. I can always give more grace if I want to. That kind of surprised me. That grace, that, that willingness to deal gently with someone who has is committed fault or error, even wronged you. That's what that word reasonableness is. It's grace. Your version might say gentleness or something like that. That's a good picture. It's, it's grace that gives someone room to fail. We all need that kind of grace. Amen? Hey, do, anybody here not need that kind of grace? Okay. Not even my boys are raising their hands on that one. They know better. Grace is an oasis in a cancel culture desert. When we show others grace, we are living out Christ's own example. I mean, after all, we didn't deserve forgiveness for our sins, did we? We're showing the world what Jesus would really do. In fact, you might put it this way, reasonableness, read grace, is applied humility. Now, I had to do the R to keep my alliteration going, but it's grace. The whole basis of God's grace to us is found in Christ's humility. Back in Philippians chapter 2, 
just before he talks about the specific example of her, <coughs> excuse me of Christ, he says in verse three, "Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count yourselves, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests but also to the interests of others. That's God's grace in action. And anytime we show others that kind of grace, we are showing that kind of humility. We will be slighted. You will be wronged and injured. But we don't call the local lawyer to get our justice. We call on God and give grace to the offender. We love that person more than they deserve. And as John reminds us, we love because he first loved us. You see, we're just taking what God has already done for us and we're just passing it along to them. Our grace is just a reflection of God's grace. Grace, reasonableness, is applied humility. One more application for us today, and it's found in verses 6 and 7. First, look at the end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I, I've got to be honest with you, anxiety could be a whole nother sermon. If Easter wasn't the first week of April, it would be a whole nother sermon. I originally had these broken up because this right here is a whole can of worms to deal with. If there's one area that we feel that we are most inadequate to deal with as Christians, it's anxiety. The words of our Lord ring in our ears. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And a little bit later, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We know that we shouldn't be anxious. We know that we should just trust in the Lord and let go of those worries. We bring them to God. We toss them at his feet. We pray that he would take them away from us. And then we pick them right back up and leave. What are we to do? You know, in this whole cycle of anxiety, we tend to forget something. It's at the end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Now, when we hear the Lord is at hand, we tend to think eschatologically, right? We think of, we think of redemption draweth nigh, as the old hymn says, right? We think that, it, I mean, it's right around the corner. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. This word, though, doesn't talk about time as much as it talks about space. You could render that the Lord is near. Near. Close by. Not far away. Paul says, he's right here. He's not over yonder. Not some distant place. He's here. Let's think about the implications of that for a second. If God is here, why am I anxious? <laughs> I mean, this is the same Lord that David says in the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So, so it's not that I'm going to go lacking, right? Okay? He's the same Lord that knew where to find a worm to eat a gourd tree plant, to teach his prophet a lesson. I mean, if this God can find a worm and appoint him to that kind of a purpose... For his glory. I mean, he's the same Lord that he's the same Lord that was there in that burning bush that, that was burning but not crispy, telling Moses, Hey, I've heard my people. Go bring them out. God's bush, containing God's voice, calling God's man to God's people for God's redemption. And he's the same God near you and near me. 
So why am I anxious again? You see, he's not a God who is in absentia. He's not a God voting by proxy or phoning it in. He's a God who's present. You can trust him because he promised. This one to Joshua. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And he never breaks his promises. The psalmist notes, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. So we have a God who is present, a God who is able, and a God who doesn't break his promises and he's promised not to leave you, not to forsake you. So why are we anxious again? You see, we forget that. We think that it's all up to us to let it go. Just, 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 just put it down and let it go. Can I, change, can I change your perspective for just a second here? It's not about you letting go of what you're hanging on to. It's about you grabbing hold of him. Relinquishment is applied trust. You see, in this practice of prayer, we're bringing all things to him with supplication. That's a big fancy word for an urgent request. And we bring it with thanksgiving because we know that he's already going to do what he's promised to do, that he's going to do his perfect will in us. You see, when we truly trust God, we don't, we don't let things go in order to trust God. When we trust God, then we loosen our grip and let the other things go. We've got it backwards, y'all. We think it's up to us to let go of the junk in order to be able to trust Christ. No, it's backwards. We've got to trust him first. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at his wonderful thing, face and, and, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. You see, it's not up to you to forget what else is going on. It's not up for you to let go of the anxiety. It's up for you to trust God. I, I heard someone talking about an addiction that he has, and he said, he said, I went on a mission trip, and do you know during that whole mission trip, I did not think of that addiction one single time. I was not tempted one single time. Do you know why? Because his focus was in the right place. He was focused on God, on doing God's work. And because of that, the addiction, well, God took care of the addiction. That's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There, there's no need to be anxious when your eyes are fully on him. Peter walks on water until he looks away. Then all the cares consume him. You see what I mean when I say that it's a lot harder to know what to do than it is to do it? This, by the way, is why Paul says he counts everything as lost. Why? Because his eyes are on Christ. He's willing to let go of everything else. It's not just surrendering the big and keeping the small. It's all a big stinking pile of doo-doo. In, in chapter 3, verse 8, that's that word rubbish. It, it's doo-doo. Let's just, let's just lay it out there. Even if everything is going to pot, we can still put our trust in Christ. He's, he told the Corinthians, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. Most of what we worry about is transient anyway. As we trust more and more in our beautiful Savior, our grip will loosen more and more from the anxieties until they fall through our fingers. So we apply Christian unity through reconciliation. We apply partnership in the gospel 
for our rejoicing. We apply humility and selflessness through reasonableness in grace. We apply trust in Christ through relinquishing all things in prayer. You ever want to know how to make heaven come to earth? That's how. That's how we do what God's word says. That's how we line up our actions with our knowledge for his glory. Father, doing your word is difficult work. It's work that requires your power. Father, empower us to do what you've called us to do. Help us live according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.